0: the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Is it time to rethink the Canadian mitigation strategy to a COVID-0 approach? Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, all things virus, weighs in. Feeling down, depressed, feeling sorry for yourself? Dr. Erica Harris will inspire you as she shares her story of a terminal cancer diagnosis, bone marrow transplant, double lung transplant, and a divorce. Did you know that one in six Canadian couples face infertility issues? Dr. Neve Tallon, fertility expert, joins me along with one of her patients and her colleague, an acupuncturist. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Did you know that we all look better in a mask? We've got to find something positive in this gigantic Canadian COVID experience, experiment, I should say, in a year characterized. And it's been quite an experience in a year characterized by masks, anti-maskers, physical distancing, COVID fear and now fatigue and a cry for lockdowns due to an inadequate supply of vaccinations and raging variants. We carry on welcome to the sunday night health show a show about sexual health how it relates to overall health making your relationships if you have any at this stage of the game the best they can be good evening i am maureen mcgrath registered nurse nurse continence advisor sexual health educator and host of this program i've got leo behind the boards you doing okay back there leo Yes, I'm uh, just fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: We're gonna pray ten,
0: ten deep breaths. Don't worry, I'm pretty chill. All right. Let's do it. Don't worry, it won't faze me. <laughs> if there's, you know, some dead space. There won't be any dead space, dead air because I'm here. Anyway, if you'd like to be part of the program, feel free to give me a call. The number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety-eight ninety-eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety-eight ninety eight. You can text there as well. So text me if there's something you'd like me to talk about, if you have a question or whatever, a comment. Um, feel free to email me in confidence at hotmail.com. That's hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects on this program, this show is certainly not a replacement for a virtual visit to your doctor or by phone. Tonight on the program, we have lots to talk about. Um, we're going to be talking about infertility. It is Infertility Awareness Week. We're also going to be talking to some people who are going to be sharing their inspirational stories tonight because you know what? I think we all need a dose of that. I have a uh, woman who was given a uh, two-month terminal diagnosis. And uh, here we are about 12 years later, she's going to be joining me and inspiring you. Also, we have been living in this chaotic times uh, a little too long now. And it's actually looking like we're going to be, if Canada continues on the strategy or lack of strategy (laughs) that we have, lack of consistency across this country, looks like we're going to be living in this uh, chaos for a while, so I've got somebody who's going to help you with the chaos and also post COVID, um, how to how to deal with life after COVID, whenever that is going to be. Um, don't forget that we talk about sex on the program, so put those kids to bed, grab a cup of tea, your lover if you have one, because we've got lots to talk about. But right now,
2: and now Maureen's health headline.
0: If you've ever heard the program before, you've certainly heard his voice. He's Assistant Professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, Canada. Holds a Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses. His research expertise and experiences have focused on emerging viruses, and this past year, it has been all about COVID. He is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good morning. How are you?
3: Uh, you know, this, this has been a tough week. Um, I think that, <laughs> yes. you know, from a, I think from a, an anger and frustration and, and uh, empathy standpoint, um, yeah, it, it just it just felt certainly different. And I think it has hit home maybe more than uh, that than it has uh,
0: in the past. I, I agree with you. I mean, it's getting, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I keep saying that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm losing a little bit of hope. It seems to be going on and on. There are so many frustrations. Uh, the mitigation strategy of Canada doesn't seem to be yeah. working. And is it time to change that strategy to go to a uh, COVID zero or COVID near zero approach?
3: Yeah, you know, certainly this has been something that's been talked about for a while, right? And this idea of can we and could we have, um, you know, tried to to do more of a strategy along the lines of uh, countries like New Zealand and Australia, where you basically, you know, kind of suss out any sort of transmission that you have, you, you know, you identify and, and contact trace and test to, and isolate people as quickly as possible, and and you get things restricted to the point that that basically the virus just can't move from person to person. I think the the tough part is there's an optimistic standpoint where you can look at this and say, okay, maybe we could still implement this strategy. And I think certainly there's there's a sense that, yes, we probably could do that, but we have to get this under control first. And the the unfortunate reality is we have a a really big hurdle to get over now, not just in Ontario, but obviously with... uh, with many of the provinces to, to the west, as well even in, in Quebec, um, it's going to take a monumental effort to get through there first, and then I think maybe we can start to uh, to look at more of a COVID zero strategy after that.
0: Now, there was an extensive French study that surveyed nations' responses to COVID-19 that concluded that taking an aggressive zero-COVID approach fared better for people from a health perspective and from an economic perspective as well. And so those provinces, I think one of the issues in Canada is that we have some right-of-center leaders uh, leading some of these provinces. This COVID has been very politicized, and so mitigation strategies work, you know, uh, are are desired by um, more so by right of center. Um, You know, is this something, do we need to actually come together on this and take politics out of it? Listen to the scientists and and wouldn't right of center want, um, you know, isn't it all about the economy? Well, you know, I I certainly agree with that. I don't know if we can get to a point
3: where we're able to separate the politics at this point. Uh, Unfortunately, I think that, we're so far into this, and, and we've seen such polarization that trying to get back to that, that center point, whether you lean right or lean left, and be able to look at the practicality of you know what would be best for all of us to to get uh, you know COVID done as quickly as possible, I, I just don't think we're there, unfortunately. I, I and I fully agree. I think that listen, the you know if we could do. Uh, you know, the you know a true lockdown, rather than calling it a lockdown but not actually having lockdowns, uh-huh. we probably could have gotten transmission down fairly low, uh, much much you know longer before uh, we have. And and unfortunately, the situation is, is we're we're seeing what happens, um, you know, when the virus takes a shift and starts to move into younger populations. And I I, I don't know. How this is going to play out, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit of an experiment. If you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is 1 877 399 That's 1 877 399 9898. You can text as well. Um, so, Ontario is in dire straits, and they uh, laid out the uh, Doug Ford laid out his restrictions on Friday, one of which was basically don't go outside, close the parks. <laughs> Um, close the playgrounds, you know, which sends kind of, I, I mean, he's, he's walked back on that, but I did notice yeah. on Twitter, um, you, you made some comments or you liked, few tweets. <laughs> um, and, you know, what, like, what were they thinking?
3: You know, I, I don't quite understand, right. And certainly I think you saw, you know, not only myself, but, uh, you know, so many other infectious disease experts from across Canada saying, what are you doing at this point Uh, you know and and i actually i did a radio interview right after he had made the announcement and it was tough trying to you know kind of hold back some expletives in 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 trying to get across my frustration we everything we understand about this virus we understand outdoors is unbelievably safer Mm -hmm. is there still a risk yes but at the same time um certainly for our own mental well-being and our own health um, we actually can use the outdoors hard advantage. So to see that somebody taken away and knowing the potential repercussions of
0: that was just mind-boggling. It is just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it just actually underscores the lack of understanding of the leaders as it relates to the virus. And I, I actually think it's time now uh, that a that maybe each province has a COVID advocate or a COVID compliance officer or somebody to stand up and that the messaging needs to change, the seriousness of it needs to change. Now, you, you noted that outside the virus is um, much less infectious. Sorry or, you know, transmissible, I should say. And um, so we have, you know, some uh, meager words in in British Columbia, you know, don't go from North Van to Richmond and don't go from West Van to Coquitlam. Um, but most teenagers fell upon the beaches, <laughs> um, hundreds of them, uh, you know, and so they're outside, but they're collecting in large groups. How risky is that?
3: Yeah, you know, it's, listen, I think we're learning about the variants still, right? So... Certainly, it it increases risk, but it's also about the idea of the risk assessment, right? So, do you have people that are noticeably sick? Do you have people that are in proximity that they actually can uh, transmit the virus to one another? And what is the overall uh, prevalence in the community? All these things uh, play into uh, you know play into the, the risk assessment. It certainly is more risky, and that's why I think we keep talking about this idea of being outdoors. You still have to be cognizant of the distance between yourself and masking if you can't maintain that. Um, but it, uh, it, it's difficult, right? Because we will see people that will push the boundaries on this where, you know, if there's something are cases, then, you know, what do we do with, in regards to the messaging? Um, it, it just makes things so difficult. We don't always have to push the limits. We can do things in, you know, from a somewhat centrist uh, standpoint and, and not always try and push the boundaries of of what is safe and what is unsafe.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here. I mean, My guest is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He is all things viruses. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. Um, we're going to talk about how we're going to get this under control, including uh, the new AstraZen- the new um, guidelines that the AstraZeneca vaccine is available for people over the age of 40. Um, but I have Wendy on the line for us from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Wendy. Hi, Maureen. First time caller to your show. Thank you. I have a question
2: for you and one for the doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, my question for you is I have been using Premarin Estrogen Cream. (laughs) Yes, very important in a pandemic. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Keep using it, Wendy. (laughs) Yes, well, I just want to know, I've been using
0: it for about 15 years. Yes, it's lifelong therapy.
2: It's lifelong therapy? It is, yep. Okay, because I'm going to be 65 It doesn't Sunday. matter.
0: It doesn't matter. All things will rebound, and not in a good way, so continue using it. Did you have a question for the doctor? I do. I was watching the BBC this morning, and the
2: scientists are saying that they really, really figure that the variants and that are traveling through the winds and the air. Interesting.
3: Gotcha. Yeah. So, so with this virus, we've always considered the fact that it was, you know, moving through both aerosols and in respiratory droplets. And I think what we're certainly getting a better perspective of is that aerosols are are certainly a contributor. And with the variance, with the way that they are behaving, I think that this idea of ventilation and, and aerosol movement is is mm-hmm. probably even more important than it ever has been before.
2: Okay. And I have one more question for you. Um, If you have the Pfizer vaccination, do you have to stay with the Pfizer vaccination, or could you take Pfizer and Moderna?
3: So far, the recommendations are still that you have to stick with both of the same vaccines. That may change over time, but we're not quite there yet.
2: Okay,
0: Thank you so much, Wendy, for your Thank you very much. Calls. And yeah. I'll,
2: I have had my first Pfizer, and I am still wearing my mask when I go out. Excellent. That's awesome. fantastic. Okay,
0: thank you very much. Thank you. Um, good night. Good night. Thank you. Um, Dr. Kendrick just reminded me of something. There was a mass vaccination clinic held in one of the provinces, and somebody I know was working there, and about 1,500 vaccinations were given out, but about 80 people declined, Uh, their vaccine, because when they arrived, they were hoping to get Pfizer and they were getting Moderna or vice versa. Um, And so they aren't they the same? That group, plus the people who cannot pronounce AstraZeneca, I feel they actually can't make a decision on whether they should get AstraZeneca or not. Um, But there are people who have these ideas that they they, they should choose what vaccine is right for them.
3: Yeah, listen, I think you're seeing still the, the same story across all the different health uh, regions in, in Canada, which is if you get a vaccine that is offered to you, please take it as quickly as possible, given the circumstances where it's Pfizer Moderna, basically the exact same technology, a little bit different uh, in regards to um some of, the, uh, some of the makeup of, of the compound, but it's still, they are still both mRNA vaccines. Uh-huh. AstraZeneca, we've certainly heard concerns, but even this evening, actually a few minutes ago, Alberta has now opened up uh, AstraZeneca to people 40 and above. So I think we're seeing a general movement now of people saying, you know what, the, the benefits far outweigh the risks. And we need to get people vaccinated as quickly as
0: possible. And how much is that going to help um, with global death rates of three million and the rising rates of um, COVID in both of those provinces and and looking like that's going to be that way in 30 days in British Columbia? um, How beneficial is opening up those uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine?
3: I think it's going to be a a major game changer. And I say that based on what we saw with the UK, you know, with using both AstraZeneca, Pfizer, as well as additional restrictions uh, moving through December and January, we saw a really strong suppression in transmission. And and we've seen those cases continue to go down, uh, even though they were at a a really tough place with B one one seven. The concern for me right now, I think Canada, we will get through this. It's going to be tough going for a little bit. But you look at places like India and Brazil right now, mm-hmm. and they are in major trouble. And right. I, I don't know how they're going to uh, to kind of turn things around quickly. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Um, big concerns over there. The other question I have, the, I hear concerns about the vaccine from a lot of people. Um, anyway, a lot of my patients. And somebody said, now look at that Pfizer. You're going to have to have three and maybe four shots. Um, should people be concerned about that? Or is that a booster? Is that like an annual flu shot?
3: Yeah, I, I think that what we've seen is some some discussion about whether or not there's going to need to be an additional booster. We So far, all the data we have is that after the second dose, people have been able to maintain really strong antibody response. So I think that there are some people that are maybe trying to you know get people a little bit prepared if they have to go that route Uh but certainly the data right now is not is not suggestive of that i think yes we likely will have to get um a booster at some point or a changeover depending on what the variants do um but i I think right now all the data still suggests that the vaccines with the two-dose regimens look really good
0: yeah absolutely and also getting a vaccine is better than getting the virus isn't it
3: (laughs) (laughs) i listen I, i I cannot say enough. All we need to do is look at the data the last few weeks in Ontario, even places like here in Saskatchewan. You look at the age demographics of people showing up in the hospital. You hear the stories of the frontline workers with people that they're they're working with and people that have survived disease and and, and that were young and fit. Um, You don't want to get the virus. Absolutely. I I can't continue to get that across people.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Kendrchuk. And as always, joining me on Sunday evenings to help out with this pandemic. Really appreciate it.
3: Always
0: a pleasure. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. If you have any questions at all, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can email me at nursetalk at hotmail dot com. And um if you have i I have some text up here on the board. um, if you have sent me a link to something, just know that I can't actually open the link. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, Don, you've sent me a link. If you can email it to me um, at nursetalk at hotmail dot com, I would uh, be happy to have a look at your suggestion. Um, also, I have a question here on the board about. Good evening, Maureen. How do you feel about transvaginal mesh? Um, transvaginal mesh is a. It's a urogynecological mesh. It's used to treat, uh, typically used to treat uh, pelvic organ prolapse, which can happen to up to half of women who have had children will suffer from pelvic organ prolapse. And a pelvic organ prolapse is when one of the reproductive organs, the uterus or the bladder falls down, falls out of place or sags. Um, and this is because the pelvic floor muscles, ligaments and tissues that hold those organs in place are weak or damaged due to childbirth. So I don't feel so great about the transvaginal mesh because there have been complications. There is, uh, there is a number of class action lawsuits um, across Europe and the U.S. and Australia. And, um, you know, most of the short-term clinical trials have, although they have found high efficacy and low complication rates when it's used for... um, urinary incontinence and that would more be the tape so the transvaginal taping and it's a very small bit like a sling um, but there's a growing body of evidence that the efficacy is lower and complication rates are higher when you use transvaginal mesh for pelvic organ prolapse so there are other surgeries that you can have um, the operator as well i think they introduced this mesh a little bit too quickly and they didn't train the operators of the surgeons um, appropriately and um and about one in fifteen women who have been uh, who have had a uh, transvaginal mesh will need to have surgery. Further surgery to remove it because it can cause tremendous problems. Uh, it can have, you can have erosion, so it moves out of place. Um, you can also have nerve pain, uh, sexual pain. So there's lots of complications um, with this. Uh, many women have said it has changed their lives, and not for. The good, so I don't feel that great about the pelvic, um, about the uh, transvaginal mesh, and you can also have a pessary for pelvic organ prolapse. There's other treatment options. So thank you so much for those text messages. Really appreciate it. Um, You know, and sometimes you can get down about down and out um, in life, but you know what? There's one uh, person who I just don't even know how she carries on and has carried on for a while. My next guest is the passionate founder of risetoday.com and she serves as an empowered mindset health expert. She's a master of resilience, resolve, positivity, fortitude, and gratitude. And she's not only survived, but has truly thrived through seemingly relentless, insurmountable feats, including a terminal cancer diagnosis, where she was told she only had two months to live. We are many years later now. She is Dr. Erica Harris, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Erica.
4: Hello, Maureen. It's an honor to be back on the show with you. Oh, oh. We've loved our time together.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for for joining me. You know, I, I thought of you um, I don't want to get too much ahead of the story. If you could just give actually the listeners a little background on, um, you know, what you've been through over the last tw- sure. Is it twelve years now. What when you had oh, that? Oh
4: gosh, I think uh, I all started about nine years ago now. But yeah, N- nine
0: years, years ago. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, so I had lived a life passionate about health and wellness. I was a thriving sports chiropractor uh, and kinesiologist. I had even inspired my entire community to live its best health status. And I certainly practiced what I preached by every measure. I hiked every mountain and soared down them all on my skis. I was incredibly happily married. I was a young doting mom to my two beautiful baby boys. And I was 35 years old at the time and still nursing my youngest when this big fire-breathing dragon of cancer uh, came into my world. And I had been diagnosed, uh, despite living this life, passionate about health and wellness. Shockingly, I was diagnosed with what proved to be a very aggressive version of leukemia. Um, I did not respond to even the harshest of chemotherapy regimens, known as salvage chemotherapy. I was awarded a two-month terminal prognosis, denied all for the medical treatment aside from palliative care moving forward but i thought to go home for these two babies if i had two months to live gosh i had so much living
0: to do and, and the other option to- was palliative care right
4: yeah, they'd, yeah. They'd, they denied all further medications moving forward um and so when i was back on the home front i definitely prepared for the worst and i made all of those um gosh gut-wrenchingly heartfelt um and hard to do uh, letters for my children um and literally prepared for the worst in every way, and I accepted this big beast of cancer and all that it brought with it, And um, but at the same time, I expected the best, and I fought, and I fought, and I pursued any and everything in the natural healthcare realm just to get to continue to be mom, and miraculously, Maureen, I attained a miraculous remission um, from this two-month terminal prognosis, and only then was I able to serve as a recipient for a bone marrow transplant, which serves as a quote-unquote cure to prevent against relapse. And miraculously, with thanks to this amazing donor who rose to help from halfway around the world in Germany, who proved to be my perfect match, after this worldwide exhaustive search has been hailed on my behalf, rose to help in my time of need and gave me this second chance. And I grew strong. I was back to hiking every mountain, teaching my kids to ski, and I was very well. But this was all super short-lived. And my new hearty immune system, uh, through my donor, decided to kind of wake up, look around, and decided it didn't recognize my own lungs and embarked on the fierce process of attack through Mm -hmm. rejection, just like it would attack a cold or a flu, um, and a, a bug from a cold or a flu, and I, I did a very thorough job. I fell to 80 pounds. I had been prescribed full time oxygen. Gosh, I grew so sick from the harsh medications. I lost my vision. Um, I had steroid related cataracts. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't see the television. Oh. I couldn't drive. I had no independence. I couldn't even walk across my kitchen without feeling like I would lose control of all bodily functions because I just couldn't get in enough air. It was so brutally hard to stay the course, and how hard. When for something great to happen to me, something terrible has to happen to somebody else. It was really, really challenging. Um, And again, only with thanks to the family of another who, through their most kindest and selflessness of effort, um, in their most hardest of hardest times was I gifted the gift of new lungs.
0: And, and so um, you had a double lung transplant. I had a double lung transplant. So we've had and a gentleman in Canada who's had a double lung transva- transplant as a result of COVID, uh, the very oh, first well, one. Yeah. So you understand what he's going through at this time. So it, it's oh, it's one thing yeah. it to suffer, as you describe. It's something else to receive the, the lungs of another, to have somebody breathe air into you. Um, what is it like in that recovery period?
4: Oh. Yeah, it, you go through a lot of ups and downs, and the times in the ICU, it was really challenging. Um, you know, and I kind of thought, I kind of thought right away, like, oh my gosh, I, as soon as that breathing tube would come out, um, how easy that first breath would be. I just assumed this going into that surgery, and I couldn't wait for that first breath. And gosh, what a letdown it was when I tried breathing, and right away I needed to go back on the breathing tube, because I had completely forgotten learning how to breathe, mm-hmm. and I had adopted such crazy mechanisms to survive in this time and just to get the smallest bit of air in that I literally forgot how to breathe and how to use just basic muscles to do basic respiration. So I needed to work with respiration therapists literally to relearn the simplest gift that we all take for granted, right? Uh uh How to breathe. And, um, and that climb back was, was a really hard climb back. Um, I also, um, with that very beautiful gift came a um, virus that I had never been exposed to. And it's a very prevalent virus in the general community. Over 90% of our community has been exposed to it, but I just hadn't been exposed to it. And having had the bone marrow transplant before, I just I couldn't prove my own immunoglobulins to new bugs. And so I faced another year in the hospital um, trying to fight this bug. I, I grew resistant to all forms of treatment. I was called the Hail Mary of our province's largest hospital. No one knew what to do with me. And I had another miracle in 2017 um, where I just grew strong to this darn bug for reasons people can't really explain. And seven, six weeks later, as soon as i met out of the hospital, so eager for that calm after the storm, my husband chose to divorce. And I then faced um, a move really uh, soon into my recovery, facing life as a single mom and facing legal battles. And I assure you, despite it all, um and despite the very obvious hardships, because as I'm even saying this story, you can hear all the obvious hardships.
2: Uh-huh. And I'm not
4: trying to den- deny those hardships. But despite those obvious hardships, I feel incredibly blessed to have navigated all that I did. I feel as though I've been chosen to go through this crazy tidal wave, to be pummeled around and around and around and to get to come out of it on this side and to serve in the capacity that I do now as a speaker and as a coach to really help others cope more positively with stressors and to bounce back and to live their most vibrant lives with the gift of today because today no matter what we are navigating is truly a gift and as i said in my ted talk you know so many of my friends would come back for one more day even living with cancer even living with whatever hardships they were living with what they would do for just one more day with their kids or with their loved ones and so really just the message of cherishing today uh, um it's often overlooked right and we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of life but the gift of today really is a gift of today and if we can appreciate it for that our lives and our perspective and our mindset
0: can turn around in an instant. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Erica Harris is my guest. She is the founder at risetoday.com. She has uh, survived miraculously a two-month terminal cancer diagnosis bone marrow transplant double lung transplant she's on the line with me she has an inspirational podcast she's a speaker she's a coach um dr harris i have a caller on the line uh, Catherine. hello Catherine. hi hi I, um <laughs> There's parts of your story that
1: run parallel with mine, and um, ever since I was born, I was only in my mother's uh, womb for half her pregnancy, so I've had a lot of issues since birth, and then I ended up getting salmonella and was pregnant with my daughter, and then I ended up where I couldn't work, but it, after that, it just goes on and on and on and on. I lived through 9-11 in Ontario, breathing in all that junk, and I, it just crashed me to the ground. I need to know, what has kept you from not giving up? I've used music therapy and just was curious, what has kept you from not giving up?
4: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, a lot of people ask me, you know, how I did what I did as a young mom. And um, as hard as that was, I would fight to get out of the hospital every day. I would pick up my kids from school. I would make a family meal. I would take them to their after-school sports. And then I would race to get back um, to the hospital. Adaptability was key on this path. But through all of those unimaginable indignities that I faced, I had adopted this personal power statement, I call it. Um, when I was first diagnosed with leukemia, I didn't know how to explain it to my kids. And I basically said, I lack fighters to fight colds and bloods." colds and bugs. And I need to go to the hospital where they can make my fighters stronger. And my oldest was just four at the time. And he shouted out, go fighters, go mama. And that instantly became what I refer to as my personal power statement, this tiny sentence, but so full of so much empowerment, so much hope, so much promise and so much positivity. And through all of those moments that, and there were many that I didn't think I had the strength to stay the course, I would feel as though I just came up for a sip of air and then I would be pulled right back down again. And through all of those moments that I really doubted my ability to hang on, I would repeat this power statement and sometimes shouting it out almost violently in my head and in my mind. No one around me even knew that I was doing it. But it would be like, go fighters, go mama, go fighters, go mama, go fighters, go. And I would shout it out until I had the strength again to stay the course for another minute hour or day to come until I needed to shout it out all over again. But that always kept me focused and honed in on my North Star on the prize at the end of the line of what I was always fighting for always silenced all of the noise all around me all of the chaos and it gave me
0: such clarity and such focus through it all. And thank you so much for your question uh, Catherine. Dr. Harris so you do get down do you? Well, I talk very openly, I've had so many awakenings on my journey,
4: and I talk very openly about the importance of being real, uh-huh. and allowing ourselves the safe space to feel and express these negative emotions, because I truly believe that when we push these down, they don't go anywhere, right? We foster them, they become, they, they transform within us, whether they transform to, who knows, cancer, depression, mental health issues, I don't know, whatever, Potentially else, who knows? But but we push them down, and so on this journey, I've had profound awakenings. I've always been a very upbeat and positive girl, but there was this one moment where we had, had to recruit this this new nanny that I didn't even know to take care of my kids, and I watched her leave with my kids, and gosh, my mind is laced. Is she going to drive home safely with them? I want to be that one driving home, right? Mm-hmm. And I turned around from the window of my hospital, and I just wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I, wept. And I didn't stop for days. And this was a problem in healthcare. There's almost this societal pressure to be positive no matter what is happening on our journey all the time. And I needed to grieve and to to allow myself to feel the loss of all that cancer came to steal. I had to miss my son's fifth birthday party. That was brutally hard. Mm-hmm. I had to abruptly stop nursing my youngest. That was brutally hard. I needed to give myself this Face, to let myself feel it and to let myself feel and express this hurt and I didn't stop for days I also let out gosh a lot of emotions that I had buried down from years before and I wouldn't even call it some trauma necessarily but we've all faced little challenges along the way that perhaps we've t- tried to negate and say oh yeah I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine but in that moment of having this diagnosis and watching this nanny that I didn't even know go home with my kids gosh, it all just came out. I finally allowed myself to switch, like an active switch from self-judgment to self-compassion for the first time in my life. And I really um, advocate with my coaching clients and and on stages everywhere that we all need to create the safe space to allow ourselves that vulnerability to really feel these negative emotions. We can do so through music. We can create playlists, right? We're all connected to hurt through playlists. I mean, how many songs are both breakups and the hurt we experience. And so, for me, I would take those songs that were about that act, but that would be to my cancer. Right. And I would sing out my hurt, like Kelly Clarkson, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. I would sing that out to my cancer with every part of me. And so being real is so, so, so important. Like, first step, I would say in anything. Um, and then really switching, you know, to the power of now, I call it. Like, um, I'm a big fan of Eckhart Tolle's work and Eckhart Tolle and, like, just... Switching to the power of now, right? From that big focus of cancer, if my focus stayed on that focus of cancer, I don't think I would be productive in here today. I had to take my focus back to the power of right here and right now. How can I maximize my, my health, my happiness, my life right in this moment? Because this moment is all that I am gifted. So how can I make this time better? Whether that's turning up the music and playing a happy playlist, whether that's calling a friend, whether that's quality time with my kids, right? And then there's always the, the reframe, the story that we tell ourselves becomes the story that we are. And so what is that story that you tell others about your hardship, whether it's cancer, whether it's COVID, whether it's divorce? What are the lessons that came in that adversity? And how can you change that story to have really empowered you? So rewrite that story that you've gone through of hardship and find your most empowering way to tell that story i learned this and because of that i've become x person right really do that reframe and craft that out take charge take back the power and fuel your body with you know whatever there's so many passionate nutrition habits out there and various diets whatever you resonate with and whatever you think is making change in your body do it and fuel your mind take this take this very proactive role in your health and your success lies in your job to do so And it's not on the doctors. It's not on everybody else. They are all there to support us and help us. But at the end of the day, this is on us. And adopting that proactive role in our own success, in whatever we are navigating, is so, so, so important. Create this tribe, this community of support, and build a great team for yourself. We cannot do this on our own. We need help every step of the way.
3: You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk.
0: Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. I do like to address your uh, questions, um, and uh, if you have any questions for me or any of my guests coming up, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898, or you can text me there as well. If you're shy, you don't want to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't want to. Um, or you can email me, at hotmail.com So I wanted to answer this question before we go on to talk about some of the subjects we're talking about, which is um, the chaotic world in which we're living and then also um, going to be talking about infertility as well. Um, but I'll start with this, uh, dear Maureen. I have a question about the virus. My niece, who is 27, is a COVID ICU nurse in Detroit and contracted the B117 variant. Her husband and little boy, who is two, also got sick and they have been very sick. The little guy had a flare-up again after over a week, high fever, horrible cough, and lethargy. This virus is terrifying, and for anyone who thinks it's a hoax, they are so wrong. My question is that once someone has contracted the virus, can they? catch it again. You know, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions around this question. While well, the CDC has said that cases of reinfection have been reported but are rare, it doesn't mean you are totally in the clear should you contract COVID-19. So the answer is it's rare, but you certainly can get it. If he, the little guy was sick, uh, that it flared up again after a week, it may be the that, that still, still that same illness or still that same incidence of the illness. Anyway, great question. Thank you very much. Uh, did you know that one in six Canadians suffer from fertility, and it's heartbreaking and even more heartbreaking in a pandemic. My next guest is a reproductive endocrinologist at Olive Fertility Center in Vancouver, British Columbia. She's also a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, and her special interest includes egg freezing and the impact of aging on fertility treatment. She has co-authored a guideline for fertility preservation in reproductively aged women. She is Dr. Neve Talon, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Talon. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks Good. for having me. Thank you for joining me on the program on this gorgeous, hot, sunny day. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I got a little burnt paddleboarding out there today, but anyway, that's another <laughs> segment. Um, I uh, this is Infertility Awareness Week. Uh, is it not? And it's time to again to raise awareness about this heartbreaking uh, issue in medical, you know, often associated with a number of different medical conditions for many people. It is Infertility Awareness Week, all week long. And um,
5: I guess the the whole point is to raise awareness of this condition and this disease that affects, like you said, one in six um, couples, and, you know, that number can go up depending on the age of the couple that we're seeing, Um, but certainly can lead to a lot of, um, you know, difficulties in how to navigate this process arise. And part of this week is about educating people and informing people of the process, what's available out there for them, the process of treatment. Um, so there are a lot of events. Um, a lot of them are put together by individual clinics and physicians like ourselves.
0: Um, but I want to talk about the fertility. one that I want to talk about the one that you're having, which is on Tuesday, April 20th, 5. PM to 6:30 PM PST navigating your fertility journey during COVID, which yes. is an altogether and different thing I would imagine.
5: Yeah. Um, I mean, during COVID we've seen some really dramatic changes to our practice, which is I think surprising in retrospect, in that despite being closed for six to eight weeks of 2020 during the first wave of COVID-19, uh, we actually have done more treatment cycles and seen more patients than ever before, um, which is quite amazing. We've done more egg freezing cycles than ever before, and I think this all you know, shows us that uh, patients are, you know, spending a lot of time at home. I think with virtual and telehealth medicine, they're able to access um, the care that they need a little bit more easily now. Um, And, you know, you look at uh, the focus when you're at home without the ability of travel and, you know, work outside, your life becomes refined to understanding what it is you really want. And I think that's been a massive motivation for people to prioritize fertility care over the past year.
0: And you mentioned egg freezing that that, that's up as well.
5: Absolutely. Uh, We did uh, almost 168 cycles last year of egg freezing, which is an astounding number. And again, these are uh, women that are single, primarily, they may be in a relationship, there's some uh, other situations whereby, you know, we may freeze eggs for a woman who's in a, a partnership, and perhaps there's cross border issues, their partner is living in an international country, and given COVID, they're not able to travel and be together to attempt pregnancy. And, you know, if you're in a high-risk age group and you're aware that that can impair your overall outcome for fertility, you know, you're, you'd be more motivated to act upon that now. Um, but also it's hard to date, right? If you're a single woman and your priority is to try and, you know, preserve Having a family in the future, uh, we're seeing a lot of these women coming in because they just don't have the opportunity
0: to meet anyone right now. Right. Yes. Uh, dating is uh, can be quite difficult at this time. And, and also every year, like we're, we're well into the second year now. <laughs> Looks like yep. we're going to go into a third year, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> said the optimist or the realist, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but so every year counts, especially as a woman approaches um, that biological clock at the age of 35. Um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this would be a very distressing time for um, people. I want to get your colleague on the line as well. Uh, Stephanie Curran. Uh, hello, Stephanie. Hello, Maureen. Stephanie is an acupuncturist and the clinical director of Elements of Health Center. And she has provided acupuncture and natural fertility care for over 20 years and is a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. Boy, can we use you Um, (laughs) at this time. Um, Can you tell I'm losing it a bit? Now, um, so very interesting. So acupuncture and natural strategies, uh, natural fertility care. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so, you know, already we know that infertility has uh, a certain degree of unpredictability to it you know as as women are going through their menstrual cycles do they conceive this month as they're going through different treatments if they're needing any of the assisted support uh, there's already a lot of uh, uncertainty that's inherent uh, in trying to conceive and then with the pandemic as well there's this added extra uncertainty that we're all under you know, together and, and really seeing that that can add to the distress that people are going through that Dr. Talon was just talking about of, of, of trying to conceive in the midst of a pandemic and, and already people feeling quite isolated. And so that being one of the things that we're supporting with treatments, with acupuncture care, with learning things like mindfulness tools for how to cope with that how to cultivate and maintain well-being even in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of a fertility journey, even in the midst of a pandemic.
0: And what exactly does the acupuncture do? And I have to say I've had acupuncture myself. I had it for hyperemesis mm-hmm. gravidarum. I thank oh. Amy Schumer for educating me yeah. tremendously about that, that condition. Yeah, that's-, that's another condition. but um, And yeah. it would last for about 36 hours for me. But what? how does acupuncture work for um, women and, and I gather men, too, um, for their fertility journeys. Yes,
1: and, and absolutely. There's, there's two aspects to the fertility journey, of course, the, the yes. female component and the, the male component. And so what it can help to do is to increase blood flow, can help to regulate uh, women's menstrual cycles uh, if they're trying to conceive naturally and there's any irregularities. Um, we can help decrease inflammation and stress. And and optimize overall well-being. You know, how the whole body is actually uh, feeling, how it's functioning, how it's doing, how is your digestion, how is your sleep, are you experiencing headaches? So we really look at the, the whole person along with what their reproductive concerns are. And, and how we can support alongside that. And sometimes we're working naturally just with people on their own, and sometimes we're working in, in collaboration in an integrated uh, care model with other fertility clinics.
0: And I have an email question for Dr. Tallon uh, mm-hmm. before we share your patient's story. Um, we are trying for a second child and would love to hear more about secondary infertility as we are struggling to have a second child after our first one came so easily. Dr. Talon?
5: Yeah, this is a really common scenario, and I think one that is not um, highlighted enough. Um, And I think it's easy for some to think, you know, you're lucky to have one, whereas many of us um, out there may feel that, you know, our idea of a family is what's actually desired and held as a really important feature. Most Canadians, when you ask them what they want in terms of building a family, they say they actually want two children. And what we see in BC, and it's the same pretty much all across Canada, is we're delaying attempts at having our first child. The average age of um, our first child born in Canada is 29 years of age, which is quite sig- like a significant difference from decades before. And um, there's many reasons. Obviously, education or just having more control over our reproductive lives, um, you know, we have the ability to control that. But if you If you delay attempts for your first when you're older, well, your fertility is going to be impaired when you come back for your second because you tend to be a bit older. Um, if you look at rates of infertility for the general population, it's about fifteen percent of people. So that's the we are one in six, uh, recognizing that's how it affects the general population. But if you look at people over forty years of age, sixty-four
0: percent will have infertility, and that could be secondary infertility. Um, so how would one know they had secondary infertility? Like what what time span would they be trying? Yeah. Would they need to but try? A really great question too so it's reasonable if you're under
5: 35 years of age to attempt for a year a pregnancy if you didn't have anything glaringly obvious um, as an abnormality um, if you had something really that was you know an issue like irregular periods that really says you're not releasing an egg properly we don't want you to waste time and attempt pregnancy over a year those months are really precious and so you would want to have help to try and regulate your cycle and um, so Assuming everything is normal, if you are over 35 years of age, we want couples to try for six months on their own. And over the age of 40 years, we say anywhere up to three months. But really, realistically, you could get a referral to a fertility clinic right away just to be in the door. It takes time to do an assessment and to get all of the testing done. Um, and in that way, if you're pregnant, you can always cancel that consultation where you still have the counseling and the information that comes from the session.
0: Um, but this is really common. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Right now we are talking about infertility. We've had Dr. Tallon, her Tallon, uh, who is an, a fertility expert, and her colleague Stephanie Kern, who is an acupuncturist. Um, join me on the line. Uh, I do want to mention there's a free Zoom talk. Sign up at olivefertility.com. It's on Tuesday, April 20th, 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. PST. Uh, Dr. Tallon and Stephanie Kern will be there. They'll be talking about about common causes of infertility and the most effective treatments. Also proven mindfulness for fertility tools and techniques based on the acclaimed mindfulness-based stress reduction program that can help you cope with the stress and anxiety of struggling to conceive during a pandemic. But right now I'm joined by their patient on the line, Natalie. Good evening, Natalie. Good evening. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Now you uh, suffered with um, fertility issues, and um, yep. you have a little story to share. Yes.
6: Um, so yeah, me and my husband. Overall, it was six and a half years of trying and fertility treatments um, before we did eventually conceive. Um, so we started off probably like everybody else. You know, we we got engaged. We're like, oh yeah, we'll you know we'll start trying to have family. Um, didn't happen. I think we tried probably a year and a half before we before we actually sought a referral.
0: Um, and you had IVF and then in, in vitro fertilization and then went on to intrauterine insemination. So it sounds like um, four attempts at that with no luck. So this was a real struggle.
6: Yeah. So we did medicated cycles first just to make sure, you know, my cycles were all good and, and timing and all that. Um, then we did the four IUIs and those did not work. Um, and then eventually we made the decision to go ahead with IVF, which obviously financially <laughs> is also quite a hit. So
0: mm-hmm.
6: um, it it was a span of
0: six and a half years. Um, and you were 35 years old at the time?
6: Yeah. So I started at, at 30. I just turned 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes. So at the time of egg retrieval, I was 35 um, as well as then last year at, at transfer as well. So and, yeah, I had kind of hit that, that threshold level of, you know, when things start to go a little bit more know right. in terms of,
0: we We only have know. a few minutes left, but um, so yeah. you were struggling with all of this and then COVID hit. Yes. How did that affect you? Um, it made it
6: very isolating. I was very public with um, my IVF journey, like all my friends and family knew that, that we were doing this. Um, so they all wanted to know. And but I. I felt like I couldn't really share it as easily.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
6: plus my job, I was working from home. So I literally was not really seeing anybody throughout my entire pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my parents live up in Salmon Arm. So I wasn't seeing them. My sister lives overseas. My brother lives overseas. So pretty much it was me and my husband the entire time.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, and you, so, did, yeah, you was, did get pregnant. Yes, yeah, we did.
0: After so, six and a half years. <laughs> yes. Wow.
6: And so I, I tried to flip it into a bit of a positive because partners weren't allowed to go to any of the appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually did the transfer without telling my husband. So oh. <laughs> I could actually have the ability to surprise him, which with IVF, well, some of that you know, fun gets taken out of it.
0: Right, right. So congratulations. You delivered uh, yeah. two twin boys. Twin boys, yes. Nice, and so they were born. Second, um, um, amazing, and so you're here to share the story six weeks later, yes. <laughs> to inspire <laughs> other women. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, is that a typical um, uh, course?
1: Well, it can be it can be for for many people trying to conceive that the journey is long yes. and and what we see um especially when it goes on for a while is the the level of stress and anxiety rises you yeah, know with, with each year that's passing and and so uh and and then what i was saying earlier about the pandemic adding the extra stress we're, hit, you know, we're up us,
0: against the clock i hate oh, to cut you clock. off there yeah, i know yeah. i know um mm-hmm. but i do want to mention you'll be on that free zoom talk sign up at all of yes. com. thank you all